students to get situated here. We'll be ready. All right, everyone comfortable? All right, well, uh, microphones work. <laughs> well, we mapped out a little plan here, so shall we uh, go through the... Uh, the uh, schedule that we've started, and we will start telling you some Harry Cruz stories. Yeah, we're going to see if we can find some order in the madness here. <laughs> I'm Steve Oney, and the first thing I would say to you is buy this book. The second thing I would say to you is read it. It is marvelous. It is smart. It is fast-paced, and Ted really accomplished everything he set out to accomplish, and he set out to accomplish a lot. And I say that with uh, some degree of authority because I wrote two profiles of Harry Cruz. First in 1977 for the Atlanta Journal and Constitution magazine where I was then a 22-year-old staff writer, and then the next year for the New York Times Book Review when Harry's most famous book Childhood of a Biography of a Place was published. And in those days, the New York Times Book Review would do a major piece next to a favorable review of a big book. And so I wrote that piece. And I thought I knew a lot about Harry. But I really didn't know anything about Harry until I read Ted's book. And I will leave you, uh, as we switch over to the man of the hour, Ted Geltner, with just an interesting thing. Um, Six weeks ago, I was looking through a file box at home trying to find some old photographs from 1977-78, the time I really knew Harry, 1979. And I found a typed, double-spaced uh, carbon of a letter. People used to do carbons instead of uh, emails that I had written to a friend about a shocking night I'd had with Harry in 1979, where Harry got wild and out of control and challenged me to a fist fight and tried to pick up my girlfriend. This was, you know, after he had licked a Band-Aid off my girlfriend's face in what Ted describes as a misguided attempt at chivalry. And, um, things got seriously out of hand and I read the letter these 35 years later with some degree of uh, concern and amazement that uh, we hadn't ended up either breaking each other's ribs or in jail or uh, that some serious mayhem hadn't occurred because it got very close to madness uh, which is where Harry liked to live close to madness and upon finishing the letter I thought God, I wish I'd found this while Ted was working on the book uh, because he really could have benefited from it. And then as I wrote Ted after I found the letter and had read his book, I said, you didn't really need it. It would have just been more. You already had it. You but already I still wanted it. Yeah, he still wanted it, and I may give it to him uh, for, for the sequel. But uh, th that's how good this book is. Uh, you kind of know when you really are on your game and are on your material when Something new that you discover, no matter how great it is, is superfluous. And that's what this would have been to Blood, Bone, and Marrow, which is a triumph of a book. And I just salute you, Ted. It's a, it's a wonderful piece of work, and it's a pleasure to be up here talking with you about uh, the late Mr. Harry Cruz. Um, I come to this, I guess, from an opposite tack that um, I don't have a shocking story involving... Uh, Harry Cruz, but um, I think I'm a writer um, for the last professional writer since 1980, in large part because of Harry Cruz. He was a, a key inspiration for me. Um, he was the first uh, 
published novelist I ever saw in person. And that was uh, in 1974 when I was going into an English lit class at the University of Florida, and he was randomly the teacher. I didn't know anything about him other than I checked his biography in whatever documentation they give you and uh, learned that he was a published writer. And he, uh, he walked kind of like a hobble or a limp. Um, he was very striking in his manner and so forth and I thought like, holy shit that's that's what a, a novelist looks like. And that was um, you know it put a lasting impression on me and then from there I read his books and was very much inspired. I think it's rare uh, when I know a lot of writers and, and we're all inspired by great writing and very few people get to meet the real live writer who has inspired them. Most of the time they're long, long past. And uh, so I, I've been inspired by the dead guys and the dead women, but um, it, I've only known a few of the people uh, in, as live people who uh, truly inspired me. And, and Harry did that, and it's like a, a trifecta. He was an outsized character, and and I don't think there's writers like that anymore. I certainly didn't. I aspired to be like Harry Cruz and never came close in terms of the, the, the lifestyle he led. Um, he it was in, totally inspiring as a teacher um, in, in inst- helping inst- instilling in me a, the kind of work ethic it takes to, to go the distance as a novelist um, and a novelist who keeps keeps writing as Harry did through all his life and um, and then the third part is just the words, the words on the page they're, they're truly fantastic stories and uh, you know I got an email from Ted um, I knew Ted through uh, he wrote a story about me when I had a movie came out based on one of my books and I had told him to have, uh, uh, my few interactions with Harry Cruz and that led to him asking me to write a forward for this book and I said to him are you sure there's people like Steve Oney who had shocking nice out with this guy um, I did not have that um, I had the thing that um, he helped turn me into a writer which I guess is important um, but um, Ted wanted me to write the, uh, the forward so I'm really honored to be part of that because as Steve said this book is very accomplished. If you haven't read um, Harry Cruz yet, you got to find a way to read him because his, his books are very hard to find now, out of print and so forth. And I'm hoping that this book changes that. And I guess to start off the discussion, Ted, why this book? That he died about when he died four years 2012. ago, 2012. Um, his books are very hard to get. What made you think people should know about Harry Cruz? Thanks, and thanks both you guys for you know uh, for the um, for Michael writing the forward and for the um, the kind words about the book, and I'm glad that um, people have enjoyed it so far. And uh, so uh, I think this is a great panel that we have here because, uh, as you've heard, now we know uh, we have views of Harry from different parts of, of the Harry Cruz story. You know, Michael knew him when he was younger. Steve had him at the peak of his, uh, you know, kind of the, the peak of his fame and, and when he was on the edge, and then I knew old Harry. So uh, my stories are all more when, when Harry was, was you know, looking back on the past. So um, Mike asked, why, you know, why did I write the book? And, and it kind of all starts with, um, uh, I didn't really know anything about, it. like, it, you know, all the years that they knew him and that he was, uh, you know, successful and, and, you know, kind of creating his own new genre. I was completely unaware of him. Um, 
I live in I lived in Gainesville, and so um, you know, kind of the Harry Cruz uh, legend. You know, if you live there, you hear about him. But I didn't know all that much. Um, I started working at the Gainesville Sun, the newspaper there, and right when I, uh, you know, very early in my time, it's just a couple weeks, they uh, the they decided they were going to film the first movie of one of his novels. So his, uh, it's a novel he uh, wrote early on, you know, this was 2004, 2005, they were filming it, he had written it in the early 70s, and uh, this is the novel Harry had... Um, if you know Harry, the the story of of Harry, he become became obsessed with things to the point of you know craziness, and he had done that thirty years before with hawk training, and he had you know uh, turned his garage in a residential neighborhood into like a hawk cage, and and uh, you know his neighbors weren't very happy about it. Uh, so this book is about Harry. Uh, about the 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 protagonist of the story is is um, the hairy character walks around for the entire time of the book with a hawk on his arm. So this is the movie they were going to film in Gainesville, and uh, uh, so I got the, the the assignment to call up Harry and ask him about this. And uh, by that time, Harry didn't really, he, he was in declining health. He didn't really get out much. And uh, so I called him up and, and um, he, he was, he knew about the movie and uh, was really only concerned with uh, the treatment of the hawks. You know, he remembered back and he said, what are they feeding them over there? You know, they feed them live bait. If they don't feed them live bait, they ain't gonna live. You know, so, and he, told me that sort of thing and uh, anyway so I interviewed him a bunch of times then I kind of got the Harry Cruz beat and I got to you know he he would never invite me over to his house but he would um, talk to me on the phone and tell me his stories and and uh, I was always happy to talk but there was always some reason that I couldn't come over and meet him you know he didn't like to meet people because he was you know couldn't really walk and you know in his prime he had been the tough um, you know imposing figure and now he was you know couldn't you know could barely get around so he didn't like to have people come over um, so a couple years went by and uh, kept in touch with him and I kept writing with, uh, stories about him and I got a letter at the newspaper from his high or from his college roommate and uh he had read some of the articles, and he said, "Oh yeah, I knew old Harry, and we were we were close in college." And uh, you know, can you, can you put me in touch with him? So I put the roommate in touch with him, and he gets right in. And uh, but still, Harry won't see me. So uh, he, a few months later, he says, "Well, why don't, you know, I'll, I'll set it up for you. I'll take you over to meet Harry." So um, so this is great. I'm going to get to finally meet him in person. And if you know Harry, his, his, his mod, one of his mottos for life was uh, you got to get naked, you know, to, to, um, to, to get to the bone of what you're going to write and tell your stories. You really have to bear it all. So, you know, he would say that all the time for years and years in class. you got to get naked. So I get to, so we go over to his house, and the, uh, his roommate, who's been there a few times, now knows what's, you know, what Harry's like now. He says, why don't you wait by the car? You know, I'm going to go check out if it's all right. You know, we'll see what's, you know, make sure he's decent. So he goes up, and I'm waiting back by the car, and uh, he opens the door, and there is Harry completely naked and by the door so he had had followed his creed uh to to the fullest um but anyway so i got to meet him then and uh that you know still it didn't really um 
wasn't planning on writing a book about him or anything, but, you know, the years went by, and then later in his life, you know, I moved away for a while, but kept in touch with him, and, and um, right near the, what turned out to be near the end of his life, uh, I approached him with the idea of, the, of writing a book, and he was, you know, at that point, he was... Um, in declining health, but still really, uh, still a, a tremendous t- storyteller, and and was willing to to you know still be interviewed and dig back into the past and tell me all of his stories. So, so that's the kind of the, the evolution of how the book came about. Um, so that's one story for me. I think what uh, these guys have some good stories too. So I'm going to ask, just because uh, and. Steve did talk to me a lot for this book, um, so I'm going to ask him to tell to, to take us back to uh, back to his era, because I, I remember one story that uh, you told me about. Um, uh, I think it was I think it was when he was writing Childhood, and uh, and you went to uh, he, he was in Orlando, is that right? And and I think. Uh, his girlfriend was there, and that's and, in your book. Yeah, the, yeah. Well, ev- every story about Harry Cruz is outrageous, <laughs> and this isn't even the most outrageous story. But when his famous book *Childhood* was about to be published, the New York Times Book Review flew me down to Orlando, where Harry was then living, putting the finishing touches on the book. I think he was done. I think he was all the way done. But flew me down to interview him for the Sunday Book Review, and. I flew to Orlando and got in a car and went to a little town called Dr. Phillips, Florida. And all Dr. Phillips, Florida is is a post office and a number of citrus packing houses and some of the most beautiful citrus orchards you would ever see. And Harry was ensconced in a beautiful two-story home in the middle of this orchard. And it was a spacious, high-ceiling, thick-walled Florida home. And... He was there with his girlfriend, Charnay Porter, and Charnay was a sculptress, and most of her sculptures, as far as I could tell, were of massive erections made from (laughs) cement uh, or concrete. So out in the orchards were these uh, concrete sculptures of male members, uh, and she was present with Harry, and she was gorgeous, and uh, she was like Harry, not modest, and uh, she was wearing a uh, pair of cut-off shorts uh, that left very little of the imagination and very tight T-shirt. And so I interviewed Harry for the New York Times Book Review under these, I thought, wonderfully auspicious, uh, in this auspicious setting with this beautiful woman lurking nearby. And, you know, the interview... Harry and I talked all day, and then that night, Harry went out and got steaks, and we got stoned, and we drank, and Harry grilled the steaks in an open-air pit, and by this point, we were so besotted that we didn't bother with silverware or plates. We just you know, picked the steaks off the grill and ate them and continued to drink and talk, <laughs> and I recall crawling off to a uh, you know, little nook in a porch where there was a I don't even think futons were invented by that point. There might have been a um, or not widely available there was a part of a mattress and I curled up on this mattress and 
Then Harry took me back to the airport the next day to fly home to Atlanta. I remember him saying, I'm glad it's you getting on that plane, Jack, and not me. <laughs> and um, all of Harry's exits were memorable. But, um, and Harry's accent, uh, Ted's getting at it a little bit. Uh, in the first article I wrote about Harry for the Sunday Magazine in Atlanta, I said that his voice was full of jazz and Georgia. He had this fabulous patois. He grew up down in South Georgia, and not all Southern accents are the same. And Harry had a kind of sorghum softness with bright, hard spots inside of uh, this mellow brogue. And if you ever get the chance to hear him speak, um, Terry Gross did an interview with him uh, on Fresh Air that's available uh, online. And then Noah Adams did a one-hour documentary on him back in 1979 for NPR. I don't know whether that's available online, but both of, both of the NPR interviews with Harry are memorable because Harry was a, not only did he have a beautiful voice, he was a great talker. He was a born raconteur and you know, once he got going, he wouldn't shut up. And uh, that was a blessing. You didn't want him to shut up once he got going. You wanted to just sit and listen. And so we're going to tell some stories about what a wild, destructive person Harry was. And I think he was destructive. I think he came very close to, uh, you know, crossing many lines and hurting people and doing damage. But you know, at his heart, he was a great, great storyteller, and he wrote a couple of great novels, and I agree with what Mike said. Uh, I hope his novels come back into print, and if they don't come back into print, I hope you do whatever it takes to find a, find a copy in paperback. Um, I was lucky enough when I was in high school, this is sort of how long I've been interested in Harry. One of my uh, English teachers my senior year gave me a couple of paperback copies of Harry Crew's novels, so I've been reading them since I was 17 years old. Yeah, there it is very difficult to find uh, his novels now. I mean, they're they're all out of print, and the old ones, yeah, you really can't get your hands on them. So I didn't I didn't know that that you were reading them so early because I just once I found out about them, I started to go through and read all of them. Um. Yeah, we, we, we don't want to tell too many of the crazy, hairy stories, but just because of the, the, what, uh, the what Steve just talked about, it reminded me of one that's from the same time that I think is in the book that Charnay told me, uh, which must have been, it must have been just months from when, uh, when you did that interview. Because um, this is when Harry was writing Childhood, and if you, Childhood is kind of his his uh, of all the people I've talked to, the, by far the majority say that's his best work. And it's, it's his, a nonfiction book, right. it's a memoir. It's his memoir of um, uh, his just the first six years of his life. So after he had kind of he had written novels for uh, ten years, you know, once he got published and and was uh, successful, uh, you know. He was writing fast, you know, much faster than most, uh, you know, literary novelists. He was coming out every year, and he and he did that for ten years, and then at some point he had the, the he decided, you know, he was he was gonna he didn't want he he didn't want to write under the guise of, about himself under the guise of fiction. He wanted to actually, you know, tell a story straight out about himself and about his upbringing. Um, so that's what he did in childhood, and uh, if you read it, it's you know it's a lot different than some of the the rest of his work. But um, so he uh, and and he completely threw himself into it, and it was a you know an emotionally jarring uh, 
time for him. Um, so the story that Charnay Porter, who was his girlfriend at the time, told me was that uh, so he he used to carry the manuscript with him everywhere he went. Um, you know, he always have it under his arm, and uh, so some. I guess he either had lost his driver's license. You know, he got a. You know, lost his driver's license many times, and he was uh, so at this point he didn't have his driver's license, and he uh, so he went to and Charnay was in Orlando, and he carried Totten Gainesville where University of Florida is. So he he took the bus down to Sear, and um, had the manuscript with him and. Recently, uh, around the same time, he had given Charnay the gift of a like a Revolutionary War pistol. So, uh, so that was in the house there. So Harry shows up with the uh, people probably know where this story is going, and to some degree, uh, so he shows up with the manuscript. And uh, whatever happens, Charnay brought some friends over, and the, and you know whatever was consumed throughout the rest of the night. Uh, Late, late in the evening, there was some sort of um, uh, problem between Charnay's. Uh, I think it was you know some other male guests and Harry. They said something Harry didn't like, or or um, somehow there was a conflict and it escalated. And Harry grabbed the Revolutionary War gun and started chasing them around. And and uh, you know they had there was like a dog I think a dog run there or something and the guy the guy tried to escape into the dog run and Harry chased him over the fence and was running around with the Revolutionary War gun and the, finally the guy fell off the fence and hurt himself and Harry chose not to load the ball into the gun and shoot the guy and instead he backed off and. Um, and Charnay yelled at him, and Harry got mad and just took off. And so then, you know, Dawn came, and she still didn't know where Harry was. And she lived out on, like, uh, it was, a, a, you know, out in the in the stick somewhere. And she drove around trying to find him, and she found Harry walking down a dirt road, manuscript in one arm, Revolutionary <laughs> War pistol in the other, just walking to the bus station. <laughs> And I thought that that's a good uh, picture of Harry Cruz in, the, in those days when he was working on kind of his his uh, masterpiece. So, um, but another aspect of Harry, uh, he was a beloved teacher. Um, you know, he said a lot of the interviewing I did with students of his, and uh, but I was never in the classroom with him. But Michael was did have the pleasure of getting to to take his classes, so he got to see him in in, in person. So I thought I'd pass it to Michael and hear a little bit about. That. Well, I, I fear I'm like going to be the boring guy here of the <laughs> of the three guys here because I don't have those experiences. There was a bar in a couple bars in Gainesville that Harry would religiously invite members of the classes to and so forth and, and I would go to them a few times and one in particular for some reason had a barber shop chair in the bar and that was kind of Harry's throne and, and he would kind of hold court there and uh, and he was often kicked out of there. I think someone actually broke his jaw in um, Lillian's um, uh, for he saying the wrong thing to the wrong woman or something like that. But um, I was intimidated by that whole scene, so I wasn't. I wasn't really part of it. I didn't do it very much, and um, so my, again, my, as you said, my angle was from a different point of view. But it, um, to me, is pretty amazing. I mean, the. Um, and I, I met him, or I took the class with him. My first class with him was in uh, September of 
1974, and in, on July 21st, 1974, I turned 18, and I registered for the last draft of um, the Vietnam War. Uh, two weeks later, the President of the United States re resigned in disgrace, and then two weeks later, I go to college uh, for the first time in and very first college class, um, 10 a.m. on a Monday, it's Harry Cruz is my teacher. So it was, it was a really weird time in, in the world for someone who's 18 years old and thinking the world's messed up and what do I want to do? I didn't go up there saying I wanted to be a writer. I'm not somebody who at age eight or something knew he wanted to be a writer. I actually went up there with, um, with a declared major of engineering. But it was like through taking classes with Harry Bosch the first one, I mean not Harry Bosch, Harry Cruz <laughs> there, there's a connection there um, uh, the taking a basic uh, English lit class that he had to teach as um, I think he, uh, all the creative writing teachers still had to do freshman classes and that drew me into some of his uh, creative writing classes this is where I started changing from being a guy who was going to build houses to a guy who wants to build stories. And uh, Harry uh, Cruz was, was part and parcel of that. And as a teacher, it's not like there were deep thoughts about um, how to be creative and so forth. I don't think he believed you could teach writing. So he was just talking to people who thought they wanted to be writers and um, and trying to get them to be all in. They didn't have that phrase back then, but that's what remind, what Harry Cruz reminds me. He was all in as a writer. I guess that's, back then they said, you gotta get naked. Now they say, <laughs> you gotta get all in. And, uh, and that's really what he could teach. He couldn't teach you to be creative. You either had that, I think he felt you had that, and I agree with that. You either had it or you didn't. And he would just help you to try to match it with a work ethic. He said, you know, this is probably said in every writing class in every school everywhere but he always said if you're going to be a writer you know you can't talk about it you got to do it you got to write every day and he always added even if it's only for 15 minutes and that was like the genius I think of Harry Cruz that he would say even if it's only for 15 minutes because if you can write for 15 minutes every day you'll never lose track of your story and uh so that was really inspiring to me. And, and when I was taking classes from him, it was when he was moving from fiction into journalism. I mean, he really had a, uh, a unique brand of, of journalism that mixed, I guess it was participatory uh, journalism. He was part of the stories. And um, with his book, A Childhood, it's a biography of, of him, but it, it, it covers his town and so forth before he was born. So it really is a... Uh, a blending or a question of, of what is journalism and what is made up. And I found that really inspiring. Sorry, I'm losing my voice for some reason. Um, but I really found what he was doing in journalism and so forth really inspiring to me. And so I actually went into journalism and eventually wound my way around to uh, writing fiction. And uh, I really think that path was kind of pointed out to me through uh, Harry Cruz. <laughs> no, I mean, I can't even remember that stuff. I do remember this. I signed up for one of his classes and he never showed up. <laughs> and uh, and he, had, uh, he had been doing a story, I think, on pit bull fighting and they, I forget exactly what happened, but he ended up with a broken arm. So he didn't teach his class. And so there was a graduate student, um, graduate assistant, I guess you'd call it, 
teaching his class and they and he would say I think he'll be back next week and then next week would come and he wouldn't show up and about like halfway through um, I just I didn't want to I wanted a class from Harry Cruz not his graduate assistant so I just being a stupid college student I just stopped going to class so I do have an F from a Harry Cruz <laughs> <laughs> I got an F in that class and it still said Harry Cruz was a teacher but he never uh, step foot into that classroom that, that semester. Um, well, since we've started talking about journalism a little bit, and the three of us here all started in, in journalism and still do it to some degree, so uh, Michael was talking about Harry's um, foray into journalism. Um, and that was, uh, you know, kind of like I was saying, he started writing all these novels and he, his name got out there. And, uh, the, you know, magazine editors were aware of him. So he started to get uh, the, um, he started to get calls from editors. Do you want to do this? Do you want to do that? And, you know, he, he uh, was didn't want to do it at first because, you know, he always throughout the, his entire life, whatever he went through, writing novels was really, he, he, would always get back to that, and that was what was really important to him. That's what he thought was meaningful. But he he did start to take assignments. So that first assignment that he took was um, uh, Playboy called him up. Some editors at Playboy, and and, and uh, this just I'm telling the story because because the the thing that Steve said at the beginning with the letter reminded me. We were talking about this outside about things that. Uh, uh, never made it to me while I was writing this book. So uh, Harry was. They asked him to go to Valdez, Alaska, to write about the the um, oil pipeline that they were building. This is in the early seventies, and he had never done any journalism uh, at all. And they gave him no training at all. They just said, "We're gonna we're gonna get you plane tickets to Alaska. Go up there and come back and write us twelve thousand words. Do it however you like." So uh, Harry went up there and. Um, uh, you know, he he did what he thought you're supposed to do. He started interviewing the sheriff and the and the you know the town council and stuff like that. And you know he and this is all in the piece. He said, I don't know how to do that. I didn't have any questions. They weren't telling me anything. So he just went out and started going to bars. You know, the few bars that there were in Valdez, Alaska, and you know talking to people and and you know as Harry would say to me, or he told me at some point. When I got a job, I just took it. I, I didn't know if I could do it or not. And I, whatever they told me to do, I said, okay, I'll do that. And then I just went and got into some shit and wrote about it. <laughs> so, so that's what he did up in Valdez, Alaska. And, uh, you know, had various adventures. He came back with a tattoo that he didn't know about. So... Uh, he woke up drunk. <laughs> he woke up and didn't, you know, and, and found that he had a tattoo of a hinge on his arm. So, uh, so, uh, but the 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 document that I never got. So that so I talked to his editor about that, and they told me they said, um, you know, the best thing about that, the thing that killed us at Playboy, was his expense report, uh, <laughs> because it was the only time that someone had expensed a hooker. Um, <laughs> So, you know, this guy, he, 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 and this was years ago when I was writing it, and he said, I'm going to find it for you, I'm going to find it for you, and he never did. And then, uh, so, um, so I put it in, 
there how I thought it would be and then he called me up just just like a couple weeks ago and he said you got it wrong you know <laughs> I'm going to I'm still going to find it for you and tell you what it said and uh, but I don't you know I just don't think I'll tell you what how Harry wrote it but but that that was uh that was uh one of the stories from from his original journalism experience but um so after that he wrote a lot more journalism and we were just talking about childhood and that's kind of how he worked himself up to being able to write childhood uh, you know after he did that playboy story he got a lot of um uh notoriety for that and he realized that um he was you know he, he was getting a lot more readership um from writing in magazines that he than he had been. I mean, his novels were 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 literary. You know, they were acclaimed in literary circles, but but they they weren't really read by that many people. Um, but once he got into Playboy, you know, and then into Esquire, you know, he had millions and millions of people reading him. So um, so he started to do that for a while, and uh, and that's where he kind of generated the material that eventually became this this memoir, Childhood. So a couple of related points. We live now in a really tepid and cautious era, and journalism today is sedate and terribly careful, and uh, writers are overly cautious and fearful of offending folks. Um, When Harry Cruz was coming along in the mid-'70s, it was a rambunctious and uh, balls-to-the-walls period in American journalism, and Harry wrote out of that tradition. Uh, Norman Mailer was the first great novelist slash journalist who won a National Book Award for his book about the March on the Pentagon, and then did a famous and uh, Pulitzer Prize winning book about the execution of Gary Gilmore um, called Executioner's Song. Brilliant, brilliant book. And Harry was very much in that tradition, bringing himself to the story, getting in trouble at some point while researching the story, and in today's politically correct and overly cautious era, I don't even know whether Harry could get an assignment, but if you go back and read Harry's great journalism, the vibrancy of his words and the um, brio with which he threw himself into these articles is just fabulous. And the best place to find it, uh, Esquire's got an online segment called Esquire Classic, and you can find a lot of Harry's articles for Esquire, and for a year, Harry wrote a monthly column for Esquire, and it was called Grits, and Harry was a grit. In fact, there's now this whole idea of grit literature, and Harry was probably the grittiest of the grits, and Esquire at that time had a um, murderer's row of great columnists. It was Joan Didion, John Gregory Dunn, Nora Ephron, Harry Cruz, uh, other people would pop up from time to time, but they were all sophisticated and uh, speaking from New York or from the West Coast. Harry was speaking from, you know, below the Nat line in the Deep South, uh, where uh, you know where things weren't quite so refined and. Uh, a threat or looking someone the wrong way could end you up at the end of a knife or, if you were lucky, just at the end of another guy's fist. And, you know, Harry wrote about cockfighting and um, circus carnies. And this cover photograph really embodies Harry's worldview. And I'll just add one other thing about that era. It was a period when writers were 
expected to be flamboyant. Harry was very much part of the world of, I guess most famously, James Dickey, where uh, the Pulitzer Prize winning poet and the author of the novel Deliverance. So when Harry would go to a college campus, uh, he expected to put on a show and the students expected him to put on a show and the show would involve drunkenness, uh, attempted or completed seductions of as many uh, female students as fa and faculty members as came into his purview <laughs> and uh, then typically uh, you know some horrific flame out uh, with Harry sprawled in the middle of a bar or in a dorm room passed out and you know just hoping that uh, he would had, had not hurt someone or hurt himself. So it, it was a very different era in American life and in American journalism. And Harry, Harry caught the wave for five or six years and wrote it as best he could. And the, he, and the resulting stories, some of them are very, very good and well worth you reading. I remember at the same time, Hunter S. Thompson was also, um, you read him in Rolling Stone, you read Harry Cruz and Esquire, and it was a real. Uh, I just remember going back and forth from those guys, and in, in my time in college, when I'm being nurtured as a journalist, and it was it was pretty inspirational. I just want to. You go. You're in one era of Harry, and you're in another. I'm in the oldest era of Willie McGuire. Oh, okay. <laughs> and I just wanted to say, for friends who knew Harry and have, you know read the book, they they think this is a fine book. Um, and asked me to tell you that. Uh -huh. I think it's really kept him pretty much the way he was. Uh, so um, these stories. <laughs> well, familiar. I was hoping that you would show up because uh, Willie has one of the best stories th th in the entire book. And uh, I don't know if you want to tell everybody. Well, <laughs> 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 listen, Harry, I was a student at the time of the University of Florida, and I was married with a couple of kids. And, uh, um, I was a student at the time, and I, I, I remember the first time I saw Harry, I had just begun in the writing program, and he came in, the most charismatic guy I've ever seen behind a podium as a writer. Handsome, there's a the picture on the cover there. It's older than he was then, but uh, had that dynamism. And so it ended up, he was, um, when I went for my master's, he was on my committee and I got to know him and everybody went down to the Windjammer and Cypress Lounge and some other places. Um, and so I went through the, he was on my committee, but he was uh, just as you've all described him, just, you know, kind of undependable everything else. And I liked Harry and we had a lot of good times and our families were close. But it came time for me to graduate <laughs> from uh, from school and uh, I had three advisors on my uh, uh, master's thesis, one of which was Harry. So I got the other two guys, Smith Kirkpatrick was the other, one of the other ones, um, to um, sign it, you know, and I had to turn it in and there was a Monday 10 o'clock uh, deadline for this thing to be turned in and I had a job lined up and I, I wanted to feed my family and whatnot so I, so I was kind of in a so Harry had to sign it and he was nowhere to be found so just nowhere and I was uh, Harry and I had kind of a funny relationship you know not not a not a bad one but <laughs> I was not at all like him so um, 
So finally, I was asking all my friends, where, where is he? You know, I got to get this, I got to get, Monday morning, I got to get this thing signed. You know, I'm, please. So I'm getting all, fr- I'm, I have a bad temper when these things come up. So finally, somebody told me where he was, which was over at his house on 8th Avenue. And uh, he said, but he's with a girl. She's over there. And, you know, uh, so don't tell him I told you. So I immediately go over there. It's middle of the day on Sunday. Knock on the door, and the girl who I happen to know um, opens the door, and she's stark naked. As, you know, talking about naked in Gordon Hills. And so I, um, I said to her, I said, you know, is Harry here? And she says, well, yeah, he is. Yeah, uh, but you probably don't want to mess with him right now. And I said, I got to mess with him right now because I need this thing signed. She says, I really wouldn't, you know, I really wouldn't go in there right now because he's all fired up and he's he's got a gun. So. <laughs> <laughs> So I was, you know, I mean, I was, at that time, I think, I don't know, I was mad. That's what it was. So I said, I don't, I'm going to go. And so I walk into the bedroom. Here's Harry. You have to see this picture. He's got this huge bed, looked out on the woods in the back. And he's sitting there naked, of course, and uh, like an Indian chief, legs crossed with this big shotgun, you know. So I said, Harry, you know, and I had my manuscript with me. It was a little short novel. And Harry, um, Got to sign this. <laughs> Ten o'clock in the morning. Yeah, fuck you. You know, he was like, you know, I said, Harry, I got to, you know, fuck you. Got back and forth, that kind of thing. And I'm looking at the gun, and the girls <laughs> coming in the room, and I'm saying, could you take the gun away from him? You know, just me. So finally, uh, he said, well, you know, I'll, I'll get it ready. Get the fuck out of here. So I just threw the manuscript down, and walked out. So I was like, hi, hey, this is not going to happen because he was really screwed up, really screwed up, almost incoherent. So. 10 o'clock, 9.30 the next morning, I go into the English department and I said, um, well, I was getting all the how to explain, you know, Harry, would they be sympathetic? Because a lot of people were not sympathetic to Harry at all. So, so I walk in, suddenly he, he comes in right behind me, so, he's looking fine, he's not super dressed, not super dressed up, but looking kind of put together. I said, did you read the thing? He says, he says no, I didn't. She read it to me. <laughs> and so he signed it, and he says, this is better than, better than it ought to be. You know, he had this way of speaking. So it was, uh, he was actually a very nice guy underneath. Yeah, I mean, I have to say, I have a lot of affection for Harry, and uh, family-wise and whatnot. I, I, he wasn't so much my teacher as Smith Kirkpatrick was. But uh. You know, I'd like to get some of your insights this Ted although I'll say I, I liked Harry very much too but Harry was so difficult and um, the last time I saw Harry was in 1979 and as I say I was close to him I'd done these two articles about him and in fact I had um, afterward I was on the staff of the Atlanta Journal and Constitution magazine and we excerpted childhood and got Harry a paycheck and put it on the cover and at that time the paper had a circulation of about $600,000 readers on Sunday and so it was a big deal for Harry and exposed him to a different audience Uh, and then he came through Atlanta to give a talk at Agnes Scott University and Ted's got a brilliant page on that talk in the book and it's about the days that he was in Atlanta giving that talk that the letter I discovered uh, addresses and I can distinctly remember Agnes Scott is a very proper girls' school, and in Atlanta, uh, Agnes Scott graduates are referred to as Scotties. And you know, Scotties are 
when I was in high school, Agnes Scott would be where I would go to hear a play performed in French <laughs> and uh, you know, get a little bit of edification, which would quickly wash off. But here was Harry, invited in 1979 to speak to these, you know, beautiful, demure, well-educated flowers of Southern womanhood. And he took the stage, and the first sentence of his lecture was, I ain't got a penis, I got a cock. <laughs> and so he meandered on uh, from there to you know various uh, ruminations on anatomy and literature, and he was drunk and maybe high at the same time. So that was where the evening began. The evening then progressed to this bar manuals where he tried to pick up my girlfriend and most of my letter involves what happened at manuals as he's trying to pick up my girlfriend who is sitting across from me and then he's quite strange and fascinating leaning in to me and saying I'm going to take you both home and fuck you both. <laughs> and, um, you know, so he's, and, but then that would be followed almost without transition to, uh, we'll go in the parking lot, we'll, we'll settle it there, we'll settle it there. So we proceeded from manuals to a very expensive restaurant for an ill-advised dinner after the amount of alcohol that had been consumed, and um, Harry passed out at the table. He just went over dead in, into his pasta, and I was big and young and had a lot to drink, and uh, but I wasn't about to pass out, so I picked Harry up on my shoulders, like you see GIs do on the battlefield, and I stumbled through the lobby of this restaurant where people were paying a lot of money to eat their meals in an elegant setting and I got five or six steps and I just <laughs> fell flat on the floor with Harry coming down on top of me and we lay in the lobby of this restaurant for I don't know how long until some, some wiser heads managed to roll us both up and get us out of there before the police came and that was the last time I saw Harry because I realized that you know the next time I saw Harry one of us was going to get badly hurt and that is my question for you and for you too in a way Harry, Harry did have a a dear heart, as we say down south, uh, and he was good people. But I think Harry could do damage to other human beings. I think Harry frequently crossed the line uh, and uh, left those who were not strong enough to stand up to him worse for wear and not better. So where did you come? One of the marvelous things about this book is Harry was this outsized character, and he was charismatic and handsome and lucid and athletic and brilliant and and different, so different. You don't meet someone like Harry, you know, who grew up on a poor dirt farm, fishing for chickens, uh, running through the cracks underneath the foundation of the house, and you know, a, a kind of po abject poverty, uh, kind of James A.G. Let us now praise famous men poverty. You don't meet people like Harry anymore. So he was authentic, to use today's word. But where did you draw the line on whether Harry was a good person or a bad person? Uh, and, and you don't have to be black and white. We're all mostly in the middle. But wh where did you finally come down? Well, uh, yeah, it's uh, a lot of people had Steve's experience because, I mean... I. He, many have told 
me that it was you know it was hard work to be in his life because yeah he you had you, you knew if you if you were close to him you were going to have these sort of experiences and um he had, uh, you know, he also had kind of a really snap temper. All of his friends, I mean, even the ones that, you know, and he burned a lot of friends that, you know, he, like, he, at the end, he really didn't have a lot of people in his life anymore just because it had ended badly with many of them. Um, and a lot of them would tell me, you know, it, it would, you know, the temper would go like that. Like, all of a sudden, he was ready to fight you, you know. And, and you know, then, uh, you know, maybe a couple of days later, it was like it never happened again, you know. So he, he had that aspect to him. Um, and then, yeah, there, there was... A, he, he had these relationships that ended badly with... Because when I was researching this book, I mean, there was a lot of people, thankfully... Uh, you know, like some of the people here were willing to be interviewed, and they remembered the good side of Harry, and they and and at least there was enough of that that that's how they remembered him. Um, but a lot weren't. You know, a lot didn't want anything to do with him, didn't want to to talk about him, and definitely didn't want to be in the book. So, um, but when I knew him, you know, he 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 really wasn't. Uh, you know, he couldn't fight you anymore. <laughs> so, you know. Uh, but as you point out in your, your book, he, you know, he didn't fight a lot. Right. Um, he, he intimidated you know, he would start fights. Yeah. Um, but then he would be so drunk. Right. Uh, the, yeah, it was, it was in. Yeah, it was, it was more, he got punished. <laughs> yeah, he lost a lot of fights. He lost a lot of fights and uh, was always kind of, I think, they said, you know, he was a little masochistic. Yes. Well, and, um, that was part of getting naked. He wanted to live near the edge of madness. And he felt that that was... He felt that living viscerally kept you alive. And I think that's... I think there's a lot of truth to that. And I also think, you know, if you got from Harry... Um, you know, the, the sense of wanting to build stories instead of buildings. I think what I got from Harry was a sense that you had to be willing to go into dark places if you want to renew yourself as a person. You had to be willing to go places that you might not go and face down things you might want to go away. And instead of running from something, you had to run toward whatever it was you're scared of and run toward whatever it was that was haunting you. And, you know, even to this day, I think that's a lesson I'm very grateful that I learned from Harry Cruz. Go at what terrifies you. Don't back down from it. Go at it. And I think, I think that's a, a great truth. Yeah, he said, I mean, they always say in writing courses and so forth, write what you know. And he said, "There's an aspect of that. Yes, you got to write what you know, but you got to write about what you would never want to know. You know, the dark stuff. Mm. And you have to. Uh, uh, and it, you can't take that easy way of just writing what you know. There's there's greater and deeper and darker dimensions that you have to pursue. Any questions? Sure. Any questions? <laughs> <laughs> Um, I, I, I guess we got to call on somebody, huh? <laughs> um, you know, I, I read a lot of Harry Cruz over the years, and, uh, and he talks like in Blood and Grits and those interviews. He, he uh, talks about you know, really looking up to Charles Bronson and, and his brotherhood with Robert Blake and stuff. But um, I'm wondering, maybe from three different points of view, uh, of, of writers that you might have talked about or looked up to or maybe even like have you had conversations about or maybe he taught certain writers, I'm not sure. 
he looked up to Flannery O'Connor. He thought that she wrote perfectly, as well he might, because Flannery O'Connor was a student of Harry's great teacher, Andrew Lytle, and he looked up to Graham Greene, and you know he learned to write by taking apart uh, Graham Greene's novel, The End of the Affair, and reconstructing it uh, as his own novel. Um, he was a product of the Southern agrarians, uh, Robert Penn Warren, Andrew Lytle, John Crow Ransom, and yet uh, he was in complete rebellion to their privileged world view. He once said to me, he said, those, those fellas, uh, they were sitting in the house drinking toddies and I was going out to get the mule. Uh, so he had a, he had a class awareness uh, that I think bred a lot of his rebelliousness. He was, you know, he was the tenant farmer's son and he was, and I think it bred some of his temper too. He was, he, he felt that he had been stomped on by more privileged people. He had a, you know, one of my favorite phrases about being a southerner is redneck pride. And what is redneck pride? Uh, the definition, it's pride you can't afford. And uh, <laughs> Harry, Harry had redneck pride. Uh, yeah, he, he definitely, there was a, I mean, he was, had a lot of writers that he appreciated and that he, you know, he was, through his whole life, he was always, uh, you know, he, he would um, discover writers and, you know, give them, you know, his uh, seal of approval. But he had a, his lawyer uh, and one of his closest friends to the end is, is a guy named Huntley Johnson who lives in Gainesville and he's a, a book collector. And um, so when I was interviewing him, he said, yeah, you know, Harry used to come over here and he would, uh, and this, so this guy has his own library and he has, you know, you know, first edition uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald and Hemingway and all this stuff. So Harry would go in there and pull books off the shelf and write in those books and what he thought of the writers, you know. So uh, so it's great to go, you go in there and see, and there's some, I don't remember who, that he would say, you know, this guy could all, he wrote one book and he lived off it, you know, or something like that, but uh, there's one writer just because just we just found this recently because someone had asked me about it and I went over there. He loved a, a writer named Pete Dexter um, and there's uh, maybe six or eight books in there where he just says, you know, this, this, he's the best living writer and, you know, I'm in awe of, of every word and, you know, every page is, is better than the next and things. So he, he uh, that was one that he really appreciated. Well, I think it's kind of like what we were just talking about, like to to go outside of your bounds to to write, and then you get that kind of raw energy and and uh, openness in in what you're writing. Um, I always I get so hesitant to talk about like how we, I don't have a, don't have clear memories of classes that I took you know, forty some years ago during ages when I also ingested a lot of things I probably shouldn't have been doing and, and, and so it's all kind of a blur but some stuff <laughs> pokes through you know and, and, and kept me on the, the path um, you're talking about him writing in books and so forth uh, writers he admired as, as one of his students I, n I never really knew 
if he knew much about me or anything like that. And, you know, I'm not a literary writer. I write detective novels. Um, uh, pretty fortunate with what's happened with my career. Um, but the, the one story I, I have that um, makes me feel good about it was that um, my first book came out in 1992, and he had a book come out, I think it was called Body or Scarlet. One of his books in the early 90s came out, and he was doing a book signing in uh, Sarasota, Florida, where my mother lived. And so she went and got in line. He always had lines when he did uh, book signings in Florida. And uh, <clears throat> she waited in line and got up to him and proudly said, my son, who was your student's first book, just came out. And he goes, who was it? And, and, and she says, Michael Connolly. He goes, never heard of him. <laughs> and, uh, which is, was true. I mean, that way he wasn't being a jerk. It was probably true because I did not make an impression and I didn't try to make an impression with him when we were in school. And um, so she was very sad to tell me that story. <laughs> I kind of said, Mom, why did you tell me that story? <laughs> so, so anyway, so that always kind of haunted me. Like my teacher, you know, I'm not, I'm not even on his radar and I was selling, you know, best-selling books and all this stuff. And then um, I think it was uh, when that movie finally came out, uh, The Hawk is Dying, uh, when it came out on DVD, uh, there was an extra of an uh, interview with him in his, off in his writing office. And he has these shelves behind him, and there on the shelves I can see my books. <laughs> it, it took me about 10 years from the time he said that to my mom to, me, to see that. And, you know, I don't know where they were sent to him. He asked for them. He wrote in them, this guy sucks or whatever. <laughs> All I know is they were right behind his head on the shelves where he, in the room where he writes, and that made me feel pretty, pretty good. mentioned he's totally out of print right now. Um, do you know who controls the literary estate? It's just languishing? What's going on? I, yeah, I do know that. He, it, well, um, because the University of Georgia Press, which has uh, was kind enough to publish this book, uh, is very interested in publishing the rest of you know, or bringing some of these books back into print, and um, uh, so it's controlled uh, by his his one son, one living son, is, uh, controls it, and um, so there's a possibility that that uh, if, a, if if a deal can be worked out, then maybe at some point that it would it will happen, and these books will come back. So I mean, and some people. Have, I've just just was talking to a guy, uh, uh, Johnny Fiber, was one of his great friends, and. Um, uh, was in most of the stories with him. So, and you know, I, he read this book, and he, and he was. Uh, we had a little event a couple days ago, and uh, he was there. And then uh, the next morning, I, I live near him, and I but but I've never run into him walking my dogs. I'm walking my dogs, and there he is with his dogs too. And he says, you know, I, I read your book, and then uh, I went to back to the shelves, and I got down some of Harry's books, you know, some of the early ones. I haven't read them in 30 years. And he's like, that, the, I can't believe how good they are. You know, I forgot how great the, this work was. You know, it's, 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 it's brilliant. So, uh, and, you know, 
when people get back into them, you know. So I think if they were, if if some of these um, were to make it back into print, it, it would be great, and I think they would they would really, uh, you know, a whole new generation would kind of be inspired by these. So. Speaking of Harry's books, there's a fabulous bookstore in New Orleans, the Faulkner House Bookstore, and it's in an apartment uh, off Jackson Square where Faulkner lived for a while, and beautiful. Um, sort of Spanish Revival apartment building with great old tiles and I was in New Orleans and struck up a afternoon's friendship with the proprietor of the store and we became friendly enough he said I want you to see all my first editions and he took me back to a locked room and opened the door and there were about 10 of Harry's hardback novels first editions there and for me, uh, that was like a jewel box. The covers were beautiful. The you know, attention to detail that went into book publishing in the late 60s and 70s when a novel was an event. And uh, so whoever brings them out, if the University of Georgia brings them out, look at those original hardback covers. They were gorgeous. Public service announcement that may cause a stampede. Uh, there's a used book shop in North Hollywood called the Iliad Bookshop. They have about five copies of uh, Harry Cruz's books. So uh, you may want to call ahead. <laughs> I don't know if you're allowed to do that in one bookstore talking about another bookstore, right? Now. <laughs> <laughs> I want to ask Michael, as a, as a journalist, when you were working at the LA Times, did you have a different point of view about Harry Cruz at that time? Was he even in your radar? Yeah, he was always on my radar because he was still, you know, doing some journalism, but he got back into writing books after like 10 years off. And uh, so I was, I've always been a religious re reader of his books. And uh, so, yeah, but I mean, I was a, a police reporter. I was a straight reporter. I wasn't like, uh, it was not, I mean, I spent about a year as a magazine reporter. And that was more when I was thinking about Harry Cruz and could I venture in that direction? But it's kind of like what Steve said, by the, the 90s, that kind of um, uh, trust in the writer, go out, put yourself into the story, see what happens, that, that was going away. And I didn't ever, I don't feel I ever had the same kind of shot at doing that as Harry Cruz. But then at the same time, I didn't live that kind of outsized life that Harry Cruz would be uh, lived, and so I don't know if it would have worked anyway. If you're interested, though, in Michael's journalism, there's a book that I have that, uh, I don't know when this came out, but uh, that's all of your um, stories from the L.A. Times, and some of them going back earlier, right. um, that uh, yeah, I still use this, um, you know, I'm a journalism professor, and uh, uh, what's, the, what's the name of that book? Or did, is it? Uh, can't remember. <laughs> <laughs> uh, ah, weird. Oh, crime beat. Oh, okay. There it is. What is it? Crime beat. Oh, that's <laughs> so you're using that in your class? Well, it's like <laughs> this is how not to do it. <laughs> <laughs> Michael, you kept your job at the Times until your second book came out. I went to a UCLA workshop, and you were just hedging your bet, right? You weren't quite sure. Yeah, actually, it was, I I didn't quit till I had about halfway done my fourth book, writing it. Um, 
But the one fed the other. I'm writing crime novel. I'm writing about an LAPD detective, and I have this pass that lets me go into the LAPD and detective bureaus and things like that. So I kind of stayed on for the purposes of feeding my, my fiction. And then I reached the point that, you know, if, it's kind of tied into Harry Cruz. If you're going to be all in, how can you split your time as a writer? So I, I, uh, it wasn't because that guy's making all kinds of money. It was more like I'm going to see what happens if I'm just totally focused on writing my novels. All right. Thank you. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.